Thank you all for joining us, those of you who are here. Um, it is July 21st, and this is the Vegetable Beat, a live weekly discussion during the growing season for vegetable growers in the Great Lakes and Midwest regions. So I'm your host today. I'm Natalie Hoidel from the University of Minnesota, and I am here with Brett Ahrens, who runs the University of Minnesota Plant Disease Clinic, and Jan Byrne, who is a plant and pest diagnostician um, with the Michigan State University uh, Clinic. And so today we're going to be talking about viruses, also plant stress symptoms, and kind of how to distinguish when you're seeing one versus the other. Um, so for those of you who are here in person on Zoom or on Facebook, feel free to put questions in Q&A or in the comments as we go. Um, and we'll get to those towards the end of the show. So with that, um, do you want to give just a little bit more of an introduction about kind of who you are and what you do? Maybe do you want to start, Brett? Yeah, sure. Um, so as Natalie said, I'm the director of the plant disease clinic at the University of Minnesota. Um, I'm also a faculty member in the plant pathology department here. And um, I do a bit of teaching when I'm not um, um, you know, diagnosing samples in, in, in the clinic. And it, you know, it works out pretty well because in the summer, the clinic is obviously more busy and I'm not teaching then. So the fall and the winter, it's, uh, it's more teaching. So it's a nice combination of being able to um, you know, work with samples directly and learn about diagnostics and being able to teach as well and pass along that knowledge. Jan, how about you? Yeah, my position is actually really similar to Brett's. So I work at Michigan State. My background is in plant pathology as well. So I work in the, our clinic is a multidisciplinary clinic, somewhat like Brett's is. We have, I think our clinic is slightly larger. We have several different staff people with various areas of expertise. So for example, we have an entomologist, we have nematologists, weed scientists. So lots of different things come into our lab. We get samples from both homeowners, residential folks, as well as commercial growers, and as well as some of the industries that are representing agriculture from various aspects. And not unlike Brett's situation, our clients send samples into our lab and they're looking for help to determine what's wrong with their sample, as well as then once we figure that out, then they want some recommendations. They want some information on steps that they can take to remedy the situation. In an ideal world, they can do that in our current growing situation. Unfortunately, that's not always the case. Sometimes we're looking down the road at steps that they could maybe take now that will help them in the next growing season or maybe when, once they rotate back in with a particular crop or things that they need to think about before they come back in trying to grow that particular crop in that same situation again. Great. Um, so I'm going to start with the first question that I think I'm going to direct mostly at Brett and then we'll, but Jan, feel free to jump in as well. I think you both have really great expertise on this. Um, so this year has just been really weird. <laughs> um, it's been like, we've had drought, high heat across the whole region. Now, Jan, like in Michigan, you're getting flooding. We're still in drought. Um, and so we're seeing just a lot of kind of weird symptoms this year. And so one of the things that I wanted to ask, we're seeing a lot of just like I think it's a result of mostly drought and heat, just kind of funky looking plants that look a little bit viral, um, but not necessarily. <laughs> so Brett, do you want to just start out telling us some of the telltale signs that it's actually a virus that someone is seeing versus abiotic damage? Sure. Um, well, first of all, I just want to, um, I should probably make the point that in some cases it's not possible 
just to tell the difference from visual symptoms alone. And of course, that's why it's important to, you know, um, be able to have access, access to some expertise, a plant disease clinic you can send a sample to to actually um, you know, tell the difference. But, you know, there are some things to look for that um, visually can be stronger indications of one or the other. Of course, with viruses, I would say one of the most um, distinctive symptoms you might see with the viral disease are the presence of ring spots, you know, and like a mosaic pattern on the leaf. And of course, you can find, you know, millions of those um, if you want to look in Google images and for various plants. Um, But the presence of ring spots, that's really, to me, when I see it, that's typically almost always a virus that causes that. Um, it had to be kind of a really weird abiotic sort of situation or maybe insect situation that might cause that. But um, that would be one of the most telltale signs of a virus. But there are other viruses that cause more kind of, you know, um, subtle symptoms like a generalized kind of yellowing and a stunting. And, um, you know, in that case, it can look very much like, uh, you know, an abiotic kind of drought or nutrient stress um, type of situation. And um, just to kind of, since we're talking about abiotic stuff, I would say one of the things that oftentimes gets mistaken for um, a viral issue are herbicide drift situations, where especially you get one of these herbicides like a dicamba or 2,4-D that causes um, growth malformation. And, um, you know, when you have hot, dry conditions, it's really good for volatilization and some plants, um, like tomatoes, for example, are very sensitive to that. And even, you know, growing a tomato in a you know, high tunnel or even a greenhouse, you can get herbicide drift symptoms just because of having the right conditions for volatilization when a farmer nearby is, you know, spraying their, their corn or soybean field or something like that. So um, there are certain situations where, you know, the symptoms can be very um, hard to actually tease apart. And you actually do need to go to that. Um, the step of getting uh, you know, official confirmation. So Jan, um, can you follow up and just talk a little bit more about like why it's so important to get the right diagnosis and just some of the biology of viruses that make that diagnosis so critical? Yeah, absolutely. So with viruses, one of the things, so Brett was talking about ring spots and some of the symptoms that are really characteristic of viruses, but in almost, in, in most cases, when you look at these viral symptoms, you can't look at a plant and know, even those of us that work in the plant pathology world, you can't look at a plant and know exactly what virus it is in most cases. It takes some testing and some further work to narrow down specifically what virus it is. But that becomes really important from a management perspective. So once you know specifically what virus you're dealing with as a grower or someone that's responsible for plant health, then you have a, a series of information or some background information that helps you figure out how you're going to go about controlling it. One of the interesting things about viruses, they are spread through different means. So some viruses are spread through insects and not just any old insects, right? You have a specific virus that is spread by a specific group of insects. So for example, cucumber mosaic is spread by some aphids. So once you know, if you're a cucumber grower or cucurbit grower, once you know maybe you're dealing with cucumber mosaic, then you know what the, what the vector is, then you can look at how you're going to perhaps manage that spread through a vector. There's other viruses that aren't vectored so much through insects, but maybe through mechanical means. And when we say mechanical means, we mean handling, touching those plants. So if you're picking by hand and you're moving from plant to plant, then that's another means of spread. 
So you can't really address how this particular virus is spreading in your field or your greenhouse or wherever it is if you don't know specifically what the virus is and then know the means of transmission. So that's huge. The other important piece is given a specific crop and a specific virus, you have better information on how impactful that virus will be on your crop. Some viruses are more significant than others on some crops. Some viruses might be in a plant, but not cause any symptoms and maybe don't have an impact on your yield quality or um, quantity, whereas others are going to be especially impactful. So knowing the identity also helps you then predict and plan ahead of time. Is that a field that you're going to continue to care for? Or is it a field that that yield loss is going to be so significant that you're actually unfortunately going to be better off just walking away from that field, perhaps disking it under to prevent further spread and, and moving on with other crops that you're going to need to have, um, that they're going to need your time and your abilities to care. Hey, thanks. Um, and just, to, I guess, a follow-up for either of you, is there anything generalizable about kind of the distribution of viral symptoms in the field, especially with early infection, or is it really variable depending on the virus? That's a really great question. We ran into a bit of this in Michigan this year. And, and unfortunately, I'm going to dodge the bullet a little bit and say, well, it depends. So we had situations in Michigan where plants were produced in the greenhouse as plugs, tomatoes, for example, peppers, for example. And then they were, they, so they looked good. They were planted out into the field and that's where the symptoms started to, to develop. So symptoms of tomato spotted wilt in several cases. And the symptoms were pretty uniform across large areas of the field, which is somewhat atypical for viruses. But in some of those situations, what actually happens is the plants are infected while they're still in the greenhouse. And even though they didn't have symptoms to um, someone that wasn't looking especially carefully, that's where the infection occurred. Those plants were already infected when they went out into the field. So in that case, you can have more even distribution of plants with symptoms than what you might ordinarily expect. That's a very different pattern than plants that are, that are actually healthy and put in the field or seed-grown plants in the field, where then the, the virus comes in and is spread in a different type of pattern. So the pattern varies depending upon where the infection came from and, again, back to the vector. All right. Um, so a follow-up then. <laughs> um, say someone has like generally healthy plants in the field or in the high tunnel, but they're seeing a few plants here and there that are looking a little bit off. They maybe suspect that there's a virus. I think with viruses, there's like a special anxiety that comes along with them because if it's a fungal issue or a bacterial issue, you can spray something. Whereas a virus, you can't really do anything. And so there's this waiting period between like getting your diagnosis and just sort of waiting to see what it is that I think comes with a lot more anxiety than other pathogen issues. And so um, I think some growers will just like pull every single plant that looks funny. Um, what would you recommend to growers in that situation? Like how much can happen in a span of maybe three to five days when you're waiting for a diagnosis or is it better to just wait and see? Yeah. I mean, I think to follow up with what Jan was talking about, it really does depend on what your individual situation is. Um, how important um, is the crop that you're working with? Of course, what is the virus is and how important is that is, 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 is very important. And, and then as well, you know, in some cases you, you have infected plants that don't, they can be infected for a while without showing symptoms. And it's not until they get to a certain age or a certain temperature that they actually start to show symptoms. 
So the, the virus might have already spread by the time you're seeing symptoms in, in some plants. And then it also depends on how much vector you have around. You know, if there's a high insect population that can spread them quickly, or there's not many and you're not going to get a lot of spread. So it really, again, <laughs> depends on a lot of different factors that are going to go on. You know, I think it is important if you are going to send a sample in, of course, it's important to know the identity of the virus, not only because you know, we'll know then how it's spread, but you'll also know what the host range of the virus is. And so perhaps there might be a weed that's nearby acting as a reservoir um, for the virus and the vector is just spreading it from the weed into your, into your plant. Um, but you can certainly indicate, um, you know, on your submission form, your concern. And, um, you know, I will oftentimes prioritize different samples depending on, you know, what's going on. If it's a situation where the grower might actually be able to do some sort of management uh, intervention, or it's a situation where there's really nothing you can do about it, but they want to know what it is because, you know, for next year, they want to know what to plant. You know, I'll look at two of those two samples if they came in the, the first day, the same day. And I'll, I'll process the sample that, you know, there may be something they can do about it right away first. So, um, you know, we can try to um, triage samples in the clinic as much as we can. You know, with that being said, I do want to mention that, of course, this time of year where clinics are very busy um, and we try to do things as quickly as we can to get a, you know, an accurate diagnosis. So just be patient if, if you can. And I would add to that, too, that sometimes testing for a specific virus is faster for a diagnostic lab than, than culturing and looking for uh, a, an other type of cause. So for example, of a bacterial pathogen. Because when I'm culturing for a bacterial pathogen, oftentimes then I have to wait for that bacterium to grow. And then I have to go through the process of identifying the bacteria that we've recovered from that sample. Whereas when a sample comes in with viral symptoms, depending upon the host, I have a pretty good list in mind of the common viruses that affect that host. And if I have the test kits on hand to test for those viruses, then I'm going to deploy those fairly quickly and have results relatively quickly. So it doesn't always take a horrendous amount of time to get a viral diagnostic back from a diagnostic lab. Like Brett said, we're pretty swamped right now. So there's that piece. Um, but I also always appreciate it when growers give me a heads up that their sample is coming in. They send me some pictures so I can see what the symptoms look like in the field because then I'm already thinking ahead of time, okay, when this sample comes in, I'm going to test it for these three viruses and we kind of have that planned ahead of time. And that can be really helpful with our turnaround time as well. Okay. Brett, would you agree that is that like a universal plant clinic kind of thing that you would appreciate a note ahead of time or do you feel like you're too busy with just getting samples in the mail to also manage that? No, it, I mean, getting as much information about a sample, I think is always helpful. Pictures, okay. a description of what, um, you know, the, the pattern people are seeing in the field, other plants that are affected, um, that kind of thing, I can be, can be very helpful. Um, just as sort of a, I guess, maybe a little bit of a tangent, but um, in the situations where people are sending in samples, um, where, you know, they're seeing a lot of growth malformation and it's many different plant species affected at the same time, that for me is a red flag that it may be a herbicide situation because herbicides typically affect many different plants in a similar way. They're not that picky about what's <laughs> going to be affected. Whereas viruses oftentimes have host ranges, you know, so in some cases they're, they can be wide, but in some cases they're very narrow host ranges. And so um, oftentimes it is just one um, plant that seems to be affected and the others seem fine. You know, so that kind of information, whether it's just one plant that's affected 
one plant species or it seems like the whole farm is having an issue um, is really helpful uh, sort of background information. That exact scenario happened in our lab just last week. Someone sent us a variety of pictures from a variety of types of plants, they weren't vegetables, but woody ornamentals in a landscape that had some distortion, fringing, cupping, just really odd um, symptoms that they they thought were was a virus. So they wanted to send a sample in so that we could test for a virus to identify what was involved. And just based on the symptoms, I was able to reply and say, this is most likely not a virus because it's a broad range of plant material. The symptoms were more indicative of a herbicide injury and then we were able to tell them, go look at what herbicides have been applied to the lawn where these plants were all adjacent to and look for other possible sources. So we didn't even have to have a physical sample in that case to redirect and probably get closer to the actual cause. Okay. Um, so let's shift gears a little bit and talk about like, once a diagnosis has been given. Um, can Either of you talk about dealing with plant material that does have viral symptoms. Imagine the answer is it depends on the virus, <laughs> but are there just some good best practices for like, if you have a coal pile, how far away is far enough? Should you be burning material or burying it instead? Um, yeah, just some kind of general best practices for dealing with that material. Natalie, you hit the nail on the head when you said it depends on the virus. <laughs> So the good news here is that many of the viruses that affect our vegetable crops are not likely to persist in the, in the plant debris and be spread from a dead tomato plant, for example, to the crop that's put in in the following year. So that's helpful from that perspective because most of them require live plant tissue and or a vector to be a source of inoculum. The one um, big exception would be plants that are perennials, which don't really fall into our vegetable set. But if there are weeds nearby around the borders of the vegetable field, then that's a potential area of concern um, for a source of that virus in future years. And what about during the year? Like if you're seeing sporadic symptoms in your field and you want to get the plants out that are symptomatic to kind of reduce the inoculum load, like is that worth doing? Um, and are there best practices for that? I would say, you know, and that's called roguing out um, yeah. infected material. I think that's always something that's going to be uh, important, especially early on. If you can catch, um, you know, a viral disease, any disease really, and prevent it from taking hold early in the season, it's going to have a much um, lower impact on your, on your yield. You know, a disease that comes in late in the season is hardly ever as important as something that's coming in early. So scouting early often I think is going to be really important. And, um, you know, I don't know if we've mentioned this yet, but of course with viruses, they are of course not living, right? Um, and so they're entirely dependent on being in a host, a host cell to actually be able to replicate. They're basically just dormant when they're outside of a host. Um, that being said, you know, some of them can't are more stable than others. Tobacco mosaic virus, TMV, um, as Jan was, was mentioning, it is a virus that can be spread on fingers and even just smoking a cigarette and the tobacco and the cigarette might have had um, and particles that can still be infectious. So it gets on someone's hands and then whatever they touch after that can be potentially infected. But that's kind of a, you know, not many viruses are that stable in the environment. So, um, you know, being able to dispose of them um, somewhere else where they're away from their vector, um, being buried, of course, is going to be effective. And um, I would say, even though, you know, in general, probably putting them in the compost probably isn't going to be a problem because the virus isn't going to be able to, you know, survive in that, in that dead plant. Um, 
as a rule of thumb, I would say diseased plant material, you're going to want to bury your burn and keep it out of your compost just because, you know, there are some diseases that can survive better. A lot of these fungal diseases, for example, that produce, you know, longer lived propagules. So um, just as a rule of thumb, I would say, you know, don't put it in the compost, bury it or burn it if you can, um, just so that, you, you know, it's just the best practice. Okay. I'm glad you mentioned tobacco mosaic virus. I've seen maybe three cases of that in my couple years as a vegetable educator um, that have been just from an employee smoking and then working in tomatoes. I feel like that is just a random fact that's really good to know that not everyone knows. So thanks for bringing that up. Um, so Jan, earlier you talked about the scenario where uh, transplants in a greenhouse are infected and then they're brought out to the field. Um, and I wanted to ask about that. That was something that we dealt with in one of our experiments this year. Um, we got impatience necrotic spot virus in our peppers. And it was, I guess, just a complicated decision process of like, do, and I know this is like super virus specific, but it's like, is it worth trying to rogue them out and save the plants that still look good? What is the likelihood that the virus has already spread and we're just not seeing symptoms yet? Um, I know it depends on the virus, but are there certain characteristics like like the vector, for example, or whether it spreads on hands that might help you in that decision if your transplants get infected, whether it's worth just throwing them all out or trying to save some? Yeah. So of course, ideally you'd try to avoid it from the first place, right? But now we're down the road a little bit. So once you know you have um, a viral and uh, disease and transplants in the greenhouse, boy, Things like INSV and TSWV can be so devastating and so impactful on plants when those plants are infected at a really young age. If at all possible, I would err on the side of caution and remove certainly anything that has symptoms, anything that's been adjacent to those that have symptoms. And ideally, I would go further than that and, and get rid of more than perhaps even just that, you know, that whole bench or that whole planting if possible. I know it's a loss, but really your losses only amplify if you go ahead and put those out into the field and then notice symptoms a few weeks down the road from there. Um, just, I want to mention just really quickly, since you're dealing with the virus, that we do have um, some tests that are pretty fast and easy to use, INSV. If you're a grower and you have a history of a viral problem in your, um, your production facility uh, and you want to test multiple plants yourself, well, with, with INSV, at least, there is a kit that you can buy from Agdia. Um, basically works in a very similar way that a pregnancy test works, you know, where it has these antibodies that detect the antigens of the pathogen, just like a dipstick test, essentially, and you'll get a result in, within half an hour. And um, you can buy about 25 strips for $125, $130. So um, if you're a grower that you want to test a lot of plants, especially plants that don't have symptoms because you're concerned maybe the virus is still in there, you know, that might be something to consider. Um, I think that's, if I was um, in that situation, I, you know, I have the benefit of the, the knowledge I have about these things, but um, that's something I would uh, potentially pursue just to do some of my own, um, you know, sort of uh, scouting and indexing different way. That's a great point. And those tests are, are designed and made to be really user-friendly. You can use them easily in the greenhouse in the field. You don't need any special lab equipment to do that. And they're, they're pretty straightforward. I use them when in my class. I have my students use them so that they're familiar with how they work. And we learn some of the pitfalls in them, but they are pretty straightforward and easy for growers to use. 
Yeah, unfortunately, they're only available for certain viruses. You know, they haven't developed these these kits for every virus that's out there. Um, but at least for some of the common ones, you know, like um, INSV, PSWV, CMV, um, oftentimes they are available. And that's really the biggest pitfall is you have to know what you're testing for. And you have to understand that you're only testing for those specific viruses that you have the strips for, the tests for. You could have a whole another virus, but if you're not testing for it, you're not going to know. So you may only know that it's negative for the specific ones you're testing for, but still it's a really powerful tool. So you would say it might be worth using those tools if you have a history of a virus in your greenhouse, maybe if you've detected it like in one part of your greenhouse and your other plants still look okay. Are those kind of the main situations that you would use those for? I sometimes recommend them for clients once I've confirmed. So if, if a client sends me a plant and I confirm, let's say tomato spider wilt, for example, then, then they might want to go ahead and buy a set of those tests so that they can do further testing in their greenhouse to better figure out what plants should be destroyed and what plants perhaps are okay to save. Yeah, so um, the company is Agdia. That's one of the largest that makes some of these, but there are some other companies as well um, that make some of these diagnostic kits. They're in, you know, in some cases, they're fairly easy to use. Um, you know, in some cases, some of the ELISA tests aren't are necessarily that easy to use, but um, the dipstick tests at least are. And in Michigan, some of our crop consultants that are working with a lot of greenhouses or even our vegetable educators, they, they have them on hand so that they can use them if the need arises. And that's a great fit for them as well. Right. So we're at about 12. And that was all of the questions that I prepared ahead of time. We do have a couple um, questions coming in from the audience. But before we do that, is there, are there any other kind of big picture things that you want to share? Anything we missed about viruses or just diagnostics in general? Just one thing to really reiterate with viruses, and I think we touched on this before, but once a plant's infected with a virus, there is no treatment for that particular plant. And so it's unfortunate that I still run into people that, that tell me they had a virus and they put on multiple fungicides and they're not seeing any improvement. And that's not a surprise. And so every vegetable grower out there should know that once a plant's infected with a virus, the treatment options for that plant do not exist. Um, and I'll just mention too, because I don't think we have yet, um, there are some mites that can cause a growth malformation that can look very similar to viral symptoms, uh, broad mites, um, things like that. And you, there's, these are so small that you can't see them without the aid of magnification. So um, that can be a situation where you have um, you know, something that resembles either herbicide symptoms or a virus or a, what's called a phytoplasma, which is kind of like a, a viral-like um, bacteria, basically. Can you see those mites with like a little hand lens or is that a powerful lab lens kind of situation? If you have good eyes and you know what you're looking for, you can okay. see things like spider mites and spider mm -hmm. mite eggs. Um, but the problem with some of these broad mites is they like to hide um, when it's, they like to hide in the, the curled up buds. And so uh, if you know what to, they're eggs, sometimes um, you can recognize them. Um, but yeah, they can be, they can be pretty difficult to see. Our entomologist in our lab looks for them on a pretty regular basis, and he's using a dissecting scope, and he's really tearing into the parts of the plants where he knows he's likely to find them. So there's a little bit of both um, skill and equipment needed to really do a thorough job for that. Um, and with that, we can go into audience questions. Um, so feel free to put your questions in the Q&A or the chat or Facebook comments. So the first question we have um, directly addresses 
your final point, Jan, that there's not really anything you can do once you have a virus. Um, Mike is asking, apparently this is a common practice among perennial fruit growers, um, but also some annual vegetable growers. So there's a practice of overfeeding your plants. So over fertilizing them to essentially outgrow virus symptoms. <laughs> is that, can you talk about that? Is that a viable strategy? I would say in vegetable production, that's not going to be a viable strategy. You may be able to force the plant to grow rapidly and such that more rapidly than the virus is being replicated within the plant, but it's not a means to eradicate the virus from within the infected plant. So maybe as a follow-up, I think, so just as an example, some of our peppers that did get infected got planted in Wasika and they are a little stunted. They're kind of weird. They are producing some fruit. We don't know if they're going to produce a lot of fruit. Um, what are kind of the, is there anything wrong with selling infected fruit? Obviously you don't want to save any seed from infected fruit. Um, but what is it? Yeah. What does it really mean when we say that plants can't recover from viruses? Does it usually mean they're not going to produce any fruit or is it just going to look weird? It's going to depend a lot on the host and the virus and we right. should be really clear. So the cool thing about plant pathogens, plant viruses, they don't have any impact on human health. So you or I could go eat those peppers and, and not be affected, right, by those particular virus particles that are in that pepper. That's not a problem from that perspective. But I would expect that you would see a, an impact on the fruit quality. So maybe you actually have the same number of peppers produced, but they're, maybe they're smaller. Maybe they have some funny symptoms on them. Maybe they're misshapen. There's going to be some other aspects to it. And so fruit that are being, or vegetables that are being produced for the fresh market industry, that's going to be pretty impactful, almost as much as if there were an impact on the yield uh, when the quality is affected. Yeah, and just because of the, you know, you had mentioned the, the fertilization issue, I think supplying adequate nutrients, I think is going to be very important. And it's definitely true that pathogens can take advantage of stressed plants. We see that um, quite often. But also in with with uh, with the plant that's um, I guess this over fertilization uh, you know and it maybe induces a flush of new growth that can actually in some cases make the plant more susceptible to different fungal issues because those new cell walls that are growing rapidly are thinner and they don't have as much um, ability to um, you know resist the, um, the the ways that the fungal spore uses to get inside the cells so um, it's not really I, I've not heard of that regarding, you know, trying to um, recover from viral issues. But I do know that when you have an oversupply of nutrients, which can actually cause problems in and of itself, because it can result in things like fertilizer burn, which things like strawberries, which are very sensitive to salts and things, but it can also make other types of diseases worse. So it'd be something I would be do carefully or um, look at um, quite carefully. Maybe a, another specific follow-up on that topic. I know last year there was a lot of, I think it was squash mosaic virus. Um, There's a mosaic virus of cucurbits that was kind of all over Minnesota. And the pumpkin growers were just kind of like, oh, well, now we have warty pumpkins. And people really like that for Halloween. <laughs> so that worked out. But like, is there anything wrong with that, I guess? Like, is that going to create problems longer term or... Does that seem like a reasonable outcome to just sell them as warty pumpkins? Um, you know, there's some interesting examples in history, actually. Um, you know, if, if anyone has heard of tulip mania and the, uh, I believe it was the 16th century in the Netherlands when the 
tulips were a, actually a form of currency um, and they were incredibly highly valued, sort of like the, you know, the stock market kind of works. But anyway, there was a tulip breaking virus that was infecting tulips. They of course had no idea what was going on at the time. They didn't understand what a virus was or anything like that, but it caused these interesting looking tulips to form with stripes and things. And they had incredibly high values um, actually, because you know, people thought it was a new virus, a new tulip that was being developed. But over time, um, what happened was that these, these tulips with the tulip breaking virus wouldn't produce as many bulbs. They were a little bit weaker in successive generations. And so um, there was clearly a, a health problem as well associated with them, which actually contributed to this, this bubble bursting and um, you know, this kind of crash in the tulip market that would inevitably sort of follow. Yeah. I was gonna mention too, um, about this interesting issue of desirable viruses or desirable pathogens, I put that in quotes, maybe um, poinsettias are produced for Christmas, obviously, and um, they are all naturally infected with a, well, not naturally infected, but they are infected with a, a phytoplasma disease. And that makes them have that stunted kind huh. of bushy appearance that people like. So that would be an example of, of a pathogen, I guess, that is doing, um, benefiting people, at least the poinsettia growers. Uh, so in nature, poinsettias are more just like they're more tree-like, branch. yeah. Go where oh, they're okay. Naturally grow. Um, oh. HVX on hosta. When that originally came out, people tried to market it as there's some new with some that's uh, or people thought it was new varieties of hosta that were being developed. They gave them different names, and eventually they figured out oh it was a virus, and this is not something we want to do anymore because of course it can spread to your other hostas and cause a lot of problems. So yeah. So I don't know necessarily about the squash mosaic virus and the pumpkins, if that's true, but um, I would be, you know, that'd be in the back of my mind. As long as they're not saving seed from it, it's an interesting um, spin on, on the sale of those fruit. Maybe they could even sell them for more, right? <laughs> All right. So thank you both so much for being here. It's been really nice to talk to you. This show is put on by the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network, which is a group of extension educators and researchers across the Great Lakes and Midwest regions, and it's sponsored by the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center. So we still have about another month and a half or so till September of episodes to so keep tuning in every Wednesday. Um, next week, we will be talking with Mary Hausbeck from MSU about oomycetes and water molds. Thank you again for being here. This was very informative. Appreciate you being on here. I know diagnosticians don't often <laughs> do more of these public facing things or give management advice, but um, I appreciate your willingness to share what you know in this medium. Yeah, thanks, Natalie. Of course, happy to join and share our knowledge. <laughs> All right, we'll see you next week talking about water molds. Hello, Ben Phillips here, just hopping in at the end to uh, ask for your help to make the Vegetable Beat a go-to show for you. Uh, you can take a survey at the top of the page at glveg.net slash listen. There's a few questions there about your preferences for experiencing the show. And if you learned anything so far, we hope you did and that it was engaging enough that you'll keep on listening, either live or as a podcast. Also, since we're putting the show on on behalf of public institutions and funding sources, we are required to report some demographic data back to them regarding race, ethnicity, and gender. And on that point, regarding the recent episode about garlic, we would like to express our deepest apologies to the vampire community for what was likely a traumatic thing. To Our inboxes are full on that one. 
So also, if you prefer live nighttime broadcasts over live midday broadcasts, please indicate this in the survey as well. Thank you. Once again, the survey is linked at the top of the page at glveg.net slash listen. Bye.